0: In 2019, a San Francisco-based couple was convicted of human trafficking charges for the recruitment and abuse of domestic workers from India. The victims were lured to the United States with false promises, then forced to work 18 hours a day for little to no wages and deprived of sleep and food. The couple isolated their victims, preventing them from leaving the home, from interacting with the outside world. The victims were verbally and physically abused, with one victim testifying that the wife had actually threatened to kill her and throw her bones into the garbage. She testified that the wife had backhanded her across the face for talking back, slammed her hands down on a gas stove causing first and second degree burns on her hands, and constantly threatened her and the other victims in the home that they would be reported to the police or immigration authorities if they tried to leave. Welcome to this third episode of our four-part series on vulnerabilities. Today on Driving Freedom, we will be talking about refugees and immigrants and how there are many unique aspects of the refugee or immigrant experience that may enhance their vulnerabilities to being trafficked and therefore give traffickers additional levers of power and control that they want to use to keep their victims compliant so they can continue to exploit their bodies and labor for their own greed and profit. My name is Helen Hofer, and I'm the Driving Freedom host, and my co-host today is my colleague, Annie Sovic. Annie actually manages TAT's Busing on the Lookout program, but brings a wealth of knowledge about today's topic, which is why I am so glad that she is my co-host today. She came to TAT in 2018 with over 12 years of experience working on issues related to refugees, asylum seekers, unaccompanied migrant minors, and migrant child trafficking victims in the United States. Annie, thank you so much for being here today.
1: Thank you, Helen. It is such a privilege to be here and be part of this episode and to be joining the Driving Freedom podcast again. I am so honored to introduce our guest today, Kristen Peck. Kristen is the CEO of Lutheran Social Services of the National Capital Area. Not only is Kristen an expert in this area and brings a wealth of experiences and background. She is also one of my closest friends. So Kristen, I'm going to invite you to introduce yourself, talk a little bit about your background and your connection to this issue.
2: Thank you so much. It's so wonderful to be on this podcast today. And I'm the CEO of Lutheran Social Services of the National Capital Area. We are a human service agency that provides behavioral health, case management, cultural orientation, job placement, and other services to refugees and other persons who are seeking humanitarian relief in the United States. And we also provide foster care services to unaccompanied children. We have a youth mentoring program, and we provide education on healthy and safe relationships to students in D.C. schools. I'm a master's level social worker. I have more than 17 years of experience in human services, and my specialty is the intersection
1: of child welfare and forced migration. Thank you so much, Kristen. So as we kick off, can you just share some examples of how traffickers may prey upon immigrants and refugees in the United States?
2: Absolutely. So the first trafficking case I worked on comes to mind. In my position or my job was to conduct assessments of children who were in immigration custody and to make recommendations to the government on their best interests. And my first case was a 16 year old girl and she was from Ivory Coast and her family came from an impoverished rural area. Her parents were really concerned about her future and they were approached by someone who claimed to be a relative And he promised that he would bring their child safely to the United States where she could pursue education for a fee he would arrange for all of her legal papers and her travel. And I'll say that this example of of how traffickers prey in the vulnerabilities of people who are in desperate situations is quite common. Navigating the complexity of our immigration laws is really intimidating. And it's not very accessible to people who don't have an expert be an attorney or someone else who's familiar with those laws to navigate. I would also say across cultures, it's very common that parents will do anything to protect their children. These parents were no different. They saw no future for their daughter where they lived. And so this person was able to gain this family's trust by learning enough about their family that he was able to relate anecdotes and reference mutual people in common. The daughter arrived without documents and was apprehended by federal law enforcement. And then she was placed in custody due to her lack of immigration status. And this man then presented himself to the government. He said, you know, I'm an uncle. I will promise to be her legal guardian while she pursues her immigration case. And that's where I became involved to assess her best interests. And it became really clear to me that he wasn't her relative. And that the child thought that he was her boyfriend. There was some clear grooming happening. This child was alone. She was isolated. She'd never been away from her family before. She was in a country where she knew nobody. And he preyed on those vulnerabilities through the context of a romantic relationship. In this situation, I recommended that she not be released. It became clear this person didn't have the legal documents to support his relationship to her or the family. And this fact pattern is actually quite common where through the context of a romantic relationship, you know, girls end up in situations of commercial sexual exploitation and often
1: servitude. So thanks so much for sharing that, Kristen. Can you share an example of a labor trafficking situation? When I worked
2: on a national trafficking program, 60% of our caseload were labor trafficking cases. And one of the jobs I had, my role was to coordinate services for victims when federal law enforcement did a raid on a human trafficking case. And one of the cases I worked on was Indian men who came to the United States to do some rebuilding on the Gulf Coast after Hurricane Katrina. And they were promised good jobs with good wages. They were told they would have housing, they would be brought to the United States on a visa and so that this would all be legal. The fee that this recruiter charged them was 10 to $20,000. For these men, that was a lot of money. Many of them mortgaged their homes. Many of them sold all their family's possessions. They were leaving situations of poverty and destitution. They felt like they had no hope. And this was the way out. This was a way towards a better life for them and their families. And they ended up on short-term visas that expired. So they were brought to the U.S., but on short-term visas, and the lawyer never renewed those visas. Once they arrived, they were living in and dirty labor camps that were guarded at all times. They were isolated from the other employees who were working on this project and their pay was docked so significantly, they weren't able to really walk away with any pay at the end of the day. This is also quite common where traffickers will dock pay in exchange for rent and food. And in this situation, the pay that was docked was far exceeded what the cost of of housing these men. And they were also threatened with deportation if they left. They were told by their employers that if they were to leave the situation, they would be immediately deported.
0: In some of those situations, it kind of sounds like wouldn't you prefer to be deported than in those living conditions? What are some of the reasons they might not feel that way?
2: I think it's important to think of the context in which people are leaving. I think sometimes what they're leaving is so bad or so dangerous in some situations where staying becomes the better of the two bad options. In other situations, like the case with these men, they took a big gamble. These are people who thought that they would have a better life. They mortgaged their houses and sold their possessions. I can imagine the feelings of guilt and of shame to do that. And then the idea of leaving with nothing and anything you had before you left, even if it felt small, you don't even have that to return back to. People are in these really hopeless situations and the traffickers certainly know that and prey
1: on that. Yeah. We often talk about how traffickers are looking for vulnerabilities. They're focused on vulnerabilities. They're looking at those points of exploitation to get their victims to do what they want. So that's one of the reasons why we wanted to do kind of this series focused on vulnerabilities, because while we recognize that you know anyone could potentially fall victim, that different people come with more points of possible contact where those methods and those tactics could be effective. And so it would be helpful, I think, for our listeners to just do kind of a summary of what are some of the tactics that traffickers use that may be unique in an immigrant or refugee context.
2: In the context of immigrants and refugees, one, there's the lack of familiarity with U.S. culture and customs and laws. Traffickers use that to their advantage. So if you think of both situations that I shared with you involved someone in the home country that was recruiting. In the situation of the men from India, they wouldn't know what questions to ask about the visa. They might not know the real cost would be of a visa and what travel costs would include often people commit to these debts that they can never pay off and that far exceed the costs of what the actual visa or travel might entail. So people are bound through their debt. We often in the United States have an assumption that law enforcement is here to help us. And in many countries, that's not the case. And in fact, often law enforcement may be comprised of former cartel members, or may be complicit with organized crime. And so when you have these situations, where law enforcement, in fact, hasn't demonstrated they're there to protect you. The idea of someone who is undocumented calling police for help, it's a concept that is true in our westernized concept of what law enforcement is here to do. Often traffickers will use the threat of harm to family as something to keep their victims under their control. And so for someone who doesn't have the privilege of having legal documents, for someone that doesn't have the privilege of understanding how our rules and customs work, that's not the context from where they're coming. It's hard for them to see a way out.
1: You know, One of the stories that I frequently share in the trainings that we do with members of the bus industry involve a young man from Africa who had come to the United States for a promise of of work, and he wanted to work hard. and He joined a traveling construction crew. That crew was led by a guy who confiscated their identification documents, didn't let the members of the crew know where they were or where they were going, was refusing to pay them, having them work far longer hours than he had thought he had signed up for. And at one point he confronted the leader of this crew and asked him about pay. And in response, the guy ditched him. He said, you have no place here anymore. And so this young man who had no money, no phone, didn't have his visa or other identification documents with him, was left in El Paso, Texas. And he just started walking and went to a bus station because in his experience the bus station a safe place that he could go but also he had a family member somewhere else in Texas that he thought he could go to if he could only get a bus ride. And so he went there and relayed his story to a ticket agent and a customer service representative there who had received human trafficking training and immediately connected some of those dots and thought, oh, this person could be a victim of labor trafficking. And so together with the young man, they called the human trafficking hotline to a local social service organization in El Paso They involve immigration enforcement and others not to deport him, but to investigate the trafficking case. That was one of those stories that I, I always like to relay to our industry professionals to remind them of how they may actually come into contact with victims of whether it's sex trafficking or labor trafficking who are seeking out their help and support because of the kind of service that they provide.
2: That's a really good example. And I think you bring to life how isolating it would be to be in a new country, how disorienting it would be to not have any of your documents. That's a very real threat. Where do you go? Who do you call for support? And if you have nothing but the possessions on your back, where do you go from there? So these are situations where I think that the choice might not seem as easy to leave. And that often what you see with Persons who don't have legal status or who are refugees, they are further isolated, especially if they don't have family or a support network in the United States.
1: I think it also goes to just how extraordinarily resilient so many people are and how that desire to just keep going it just really continues to drive people and where can we come in, offer a helping hand or offer a bridge or a pathway to kind of a new reality for someone?
0: And we talk about that as like a, a common factor in human trafficking. If you don't have that parent or adult or like supportive other person in your life keeping an eye out, trying to keep you safe, trying to be that outside voice when you think a decision is sound and right. But then the outside perspective saying, Hey, actually, this actually doesn't seem that good. We need those voices, right? To help see from a different perspective, to say, Oh, I have another option. I can choose the safe option instead of feeling like I don't have any options. You touched on a little bit of the background of where people are coming from. We talk about a history of abuse being a common indicator. So if you're coming from a country where maybe there is war or violence or unrest, the likelihood of you having witnessed violence or experienced violence yourself is higher. So then you are coming with that already on top of, right, not being able to speak the language. I can imagine being dropped off. No one else can speak to you. You can't read the signage. Like what are some of these other things that we might know just about the area where we grew up or where we live? Like, oh, I know where to go for help when I need it. As Annie touches on that, where might our audience, professional drivers, whether that trucking or bus, where might they be witnessing potential trafficking situations and how might they be able to step into that? Some
2: industries that I can think of that you would interact with a lot if you are regularly on the move in the car or in a truck or a bus would be the service industry. The restaurants you might be frequenting, gas stations, If you see someone who looks unkempt and if the situation or the location where they live and work are the same, if it seems like they're looking to others, to the speaking for them and afraid to speak for themselves, those might be signs of trafficking. Annie's example is a good one in construction. Migrant farm work is another industry where there's a lot of trafficking that your listeners might be in a position to witness. As you started off, Helen, domestic servitude, that's another example of labor trafficking. I think people often are so concerned with getting it right that that sometimes can be a barrier of calling to report. And I think I would just take everyone off the hook. None of us need to be the investigator here. And none of us need to be in a position that we are making a legal determination if something's trafficking or not. But having warning signs alone is enough to report and let the professionals do the investigating. But you reporting a situation, you might be that one lifeline, that one opportunity for that person to leave the situation.
0: And that's the great thing about the hotline, right? You don't have to know in order to report to the hotline, you report the location and time and then they're able to direct the people who are trained to respond. And so that's what we love about the hotline. And Annie, I'd love to have you speak into okay as we talk about these next steps, especially I mean maybe even thinking through your expertise in the with the bus industry but also talking about the trucking industry.
1: Yeah, I mean I think Be cautious of all of those things and always remember to extend a little bit of kindness, extend a little bit of patience and grace. And when we're talking about new American or immigrant populations who may have limited English proficiency, offer to help call the hotline with them or give them information about the hotline. Let them know there might be resources out there to help them. And give them information that may end up making a a huge difference in their lives down the road.
0: And you touched on what actually are some of those resources that are available specifically to trafficking victims who may be foreign nationals?
2: So if we were referred a case by the human trafficking hotline, for example, some things that we would be able to assist with would be ensuring that that the individual is connected to an immigration attorney to help them navigate their legal case and and pursue um, avenues for immigration status. But then we would also be able to provide social services, helping with housing and mental health, helping them with job placement, with survivors of trafficking. Their ability to make decisions about their own lives has been taken from them by the trafficker. So really helping them recognize that ability to make their own choices and support them in doing that. Really services uh, around cultural orientation and life skills and, and how to navigate being in the United States and, and what the culture and customs are. So there's a whole national network of organizations like the one I work for that are available to help. I think by calling the hotline, you'd be able to ensure that the person who is in need of the services would be connected wherever they might be.
0: Awesome. Is there anything else that you would want to add for our listeners to about the topic? Anything? Well, I,
2: I, I will just say, thank you so much for having me on today. I really appreciate it. I think this is such an important topic. Uh, so many situations of human trafficking are underreported and it's an underground industry. And I think that one of the most fundamental human needs is to belong and when people are isolated or feel like they don't belong, there are incredible risks, and I think that's the case with many people who are new neighbors, new Americans, new to our country. And I want to echo what Annie said earlier about the spirit of resiliency that we've seen and that I've seen personally, and so many people who are survivors of human trafficking. Your call can really make a difference. You know, this is this is a human on the other end of the line, and just echoing Annie's calls for compassion and grace.
0: Thank you so much, Kristen, for taking the time to share your expertise, your stories, your experiences with us. That is really helpful to better understand the reality of what it looks like to be in America, to be new to America, and to potentially be targeted by traffickers because of that, and because of the particular vulnerabilities. Now, I wanna remind all of our listeners to check out the show notes for more information on this topic and ways you can support people who are new to America This is a part of our vulnerability series because not only do we want to stop trafficking when you see it in action, but we want to stop it from ever happening. We want to make sure that people don't have to suffer under these vulnerabilities, but experience support, experience belonging, experience real choices and opportunities so that they get to make their own choice and live a full, thriving life. Thank you for continuing to dive deep with us into this vulnerability series. So remember, especially when you are potentially delivering to a construction site, when you're in neighborhoods, when you're in agricultural areas, when you're around factories, these are areas we know there have been trafficking situations, but of course, Traffickers will take their victims and use their victims wherever they can. So be on the lookout. Look for the red flags we mentioned today. Go on to our website, go through our training that will also list the red flags. And you can get some of our materials like our wallet cards, which have red flags. Now, if you've been enjoying these episodes, please make sure to share them. I'll rate and review the episodes so that more people can find our podcast. And if you see those signs, please don't hesitate to call the National Human Trafficking Hotline number 1-888-373-7888. So whether that's supporting someone so they're never trafficked or reporting trafficking to stop it from continuing, you as professional drivers are on the front lines. You truly are driving freedom.